Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan. And in this show, I have illuminating conversations with interesting people that inspire me. And today's guest is the Honorable Judge Renee Cruz. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And I've, I met Judge Renee Cruz um, a few years back when we were organizing a Fiestas Patrias Festival celebration here in Aurora. I know it's near and dear to your heart, and we're going to talk about that. Um, but before we get started, I'm going to read your bio, okay. and then uh, we'll jump right in. The Honorable Judge Renee Cruz was born in the country of Panama to a Puerto Rican father and a Panamanian mother. His father was a career soldier in the U.S. Army, and you attended the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. And you also graduated from the Northern Illinois University College of Law. And you became partner here at Aurora at the law offices of Gill and Cruz, hence Judge Renee Cruz, <laughs> Gill and Cruz. And you serve on various local professional and nonprofit boards. So many, to, this is a long list, but some notable ones, Family Focus, Criminal Justice Advisory Boards, the Affordable Housing Task Force, the Bar Association Board of Managers, and of course, the Aurora Hispanic Heritage Advisory Board, and you are also president of the Aurora Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And in 2012, after noticing a lack of representation in the judiciary, you started your campaign to become a judge, and you are now the first Hispanic judge in Kane County. Correct. Back in 2012, I was. Oh, back in 2012, you were, <laughs> but you broke that ceiling there. Correct. Yeah, you'll always be the first, <laughs> but you're now you're saying you're not the only. Correct. Which is awesome. Correct. And um, I understand that you've presided over family law and then criminal misdemeanor and traffic law. Correct. And, and so this is incredible. <laughs> and I had the privilege of watching your swearing in video. And I was moved by understanding a little bit more context on your background and the sacrifices your parents made. So let's start there. If, if we can, we'll start from the beginning and then work ourselves up to your pathway to becoming a judge. Um, but where it all started in Panama. Sure. If you can provide some context. So I, I was born in Panama. My mother was pregnant with me. My, my family actually lived in Fort, I forget the name now. Where was it? Fort Benning, Kentucky? No. It was somewhere in Kentucky. Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's where I was supposed to be born. My father then got sent back to Vietnam to serve his second tour. So my mother, with my two older brothers and being pregnant, decided to go home uh, to be surrounded by family. So I was born in Panama, met my dad for the first time when I was nine months old, and then spent five years there. The Army then sent us to Kansas for five years, up here to Illinois at Fort Sheridan for three years, and then down to... Uh, Virginia for another three years, and then back to Panama, where I ended up graduating high school. So you're a military brat. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> it, was that 
tough? Was it, did you like it? You know, the, the one thing I, I always tell people about being a military brat, every time we moved, I hated it. You know, I would cry. I would miss people. I just, you know, I didn't want the change. Yeah. Um, but over time I realized that the fact that I was hating the moves that I, you know, that I missed it. I didn't like it so much meant that I learned to love the new environment. So it did teach us as brothers how to adapt to new situations. And one of the things I loved about it over time is you realize when you move into a military base, whoever your next door neighbor is, boy, girl, white, black, uh, Hispanic, it, that was your best friend. Yeah. Um, so that's just the way it worked. Uh, whoever was next door was your best friend. So uh, as an adult, I, I realized the benefits of it. As a child, it wasn't the most fun yeah. thing to do. You're not, you're not trying to reframe <laughs> the problem at that no, point. No. <laughs> you only see the loss. Correct. Yeah. And you talked about um, your dad being in the in Vietnam mm -hmm. and a letter that you carried when you were swearing in. And can you share what what that was? Yeah, for those that, that don't realize, you know, Vietnam was a, a war that was very unpopular. And so, you know, people that served there were not very welcome when they came back. And there were strong emotions both ways. And my father never really talked about it. You know, my mother would always say he came back a different person from the war than he was when he left. Um, but it wasn't until I graduated high school that um, I was on my way to college and he pulled out this letter. And it was actually the notice from the Red Cross that I was born. And he retold the story of being basically sleeping in the jungle and having his name called out. And he carried it around all that time, although he never spoke about it. And he handed it to me and it just gave me that sense of, wow, what if, you know, um, this is a time when there was no, you know, social media, there was no cell phones, there was no FaceTime. That time when you go to war, you're, you're terrified that you get a knock at the door because it might be bad news. And in comparison to now, you can have family over in, in combat, but you can talk to them almost on a daily basis. So that fear of not knowing that um, him being there, knowing that my mom was pregnant with me and not knowing if we'd ever meet, mm -hmm. uh, he carried that around for a long time. So that letter meant a lot. Yeah. Me. And yeah. just even the way that he was notified, mm -hmm. right? It's a, it's, it's a simple letter. You're sure. just, you had a boy, you had sure. a son and that's it. It's not like, you know, mm -hmm. you, you get to talk on the phone and- that's powerful, sure. right? Because it does put it into perspective of the sacrifice that he made mm -hmm. to serve our country, as well as the example that he led for you. Correct. And then, you know, we, we talk about veterans a lot. I, I always want to make sure that the spouses of veterans get recognition. My mother, you know, her position, she's pregnant with her third child. Her husband's at war for the second time. You know, and, and she doesn't have him by her side as she's giving birth and she's raising me for nine months before he comes home. And every day that goes by, you, you're, you're questioning whether or not that, that reunion will ever happen. Yeah. Um, so the sacrifices on her end are just as great. Not, not, they don't carry the danger that being at war does, but it was just as great a sacrifice, I believe. And you have two brothers. So your mom raised three boys. Yes. I have three boys too. <laughs> and so I... I, I love um, families with boys. Sure. As girls too. I love girls too. Let me <laughs> clarify. But what was that like? So I'm the baby. So of course the favorite. Uh, <laughs> um, but it was, it, for me, it was easy, especially moving around um, because I had two older brothers to rely on and I could just follow them around everywhere. They were also the example for everything I did. I mean, very competitive in sports. So everything they did, I, I mirrored. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to do this sport, I would do that sport. And so I always felt like I was better at things because I had them as the example for those things as well. And you were very high achieving. I mean, you went to Citadel and mm -hmm. in what, South Carolina, and then you went to law school. Mm -hmm. What 
put you on that path at a young age where you knew this is the pathway for you? Was it seeing the examples of your brothers or was it something else? So it's interesting that all three of us had the desire to serve in the military because that basically that put food on our table and it was what we knew. All three of us were disqualified for different reasons, <laughs> um, but we all had that, that same desire to serve and kind of give back. My father did not share that opinion. You know, he joined the military out of Puerto Rico and, and it's, I don't want to say necessarily to escape poverty, but there were fewer options yeah. back then. And it provided a life, a good life for all of us. Everyone else was disqualified. So when it was my turn, I remember my, I was, my plan was I'm going to join the military. They'll help pay for my college. You know, I'll go forward. My mother's dream was always that all of us, you know, get our college education. So she, she told me that she wanted me to go to college because she knew that if I joined the military, I'd fall in love, I'd start a family and I'd never finish school. So that, that led to several conversations and um, kind of a compromise. I, I ended up going to the Citadel, which is a military college. It was all male at that time. Uh, you had a choice of all four different branches to study. I went Air Force. And I went Air Force because my father suggested I go Air Force. So is Citadel, the, is that a high school? That's a military college. It's a college, right? Yeah. So you graduated high school and then mm -hmm. went to the Citadel. And yeah. then they still gave you pathways to each of the branches? Correct. So you could you could do any four of the ROTCs, so Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. I chose Air Force because my father suggested the Air Force would be a better career path, even though he was in the Army the entire time. And so that just gave me like a hybrid. Let me figure out whether that's the path I want to follow or not. And it, it was, but then it just didn't work out because of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And then what made you go to law? So I had the opportunity to go into the military. Then politics changed around the world. They were recruiting and then the wall fell in, in Germany, so they weren't needing as many people. And so I lost that opportunity. I had asthma when I was eight, so that was became a disqualifying factor. And then um, law school was always always the backup plan. Really? Yeah. And you got in. You got in. You, I did. You came out. You, how did you get to Aurora? So when we lived up north at Fort Sheridan, my older brother graduated from high school, and then he stayed here uh -huh. in the area. So it was Aurora College. He went to Aurora College back then. It's Aurora University now. Oh. Um, but when I was at the Citadel, I had to work in the summers to make money. My parents retired, lived in Panama. There was no, I think it was about 67, 68 cents an hour minimum wage there. So I came up here, slept on his couch and uh, worked and saved money for school. And you never left. <laughs> nope, <laughs> never left. And then you became partner at Gill and Cruz Law, or you worked your way to becoming partner at Gill and Cruz Law Firm. Sure. And what was that like? Are you, are you happy? Are you, you know, thriving in your profession? Is it, is it a hard time? So it's interesting. So developing a law practice is, is tough, especially since I wasn't from the area. I didn't have any natural network of people, you know, people I went to high school with or anything like that that would become clients. And that actually was a big plus because I just invested myself in my surroundings. So joining groups, networking, um, finding out ways to, to serve, help. My brother was always a participant with like the JCs. And I remember yeah. delivering sand for kids in the, in the summer and different volunteer events. So that just started uh, giving me the opportunity to meet a lot of people and then join groups to, to do different projects and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it just grew. It just grew exponentially. Um, when we started, actually, it was at a different firm. My partner back then, or Ed Gill, when he hired me, he was the only Spanish-speaking lawyer in town. And I knew I wanted to work with him because I knew the need was there. Mm -hmm. And uh, being bilingual, when we started, there was just the two of us. We had, I think, one full-time secretary and one part-time receptionist. 
And within a couple of years, we grew. And by the time I left, I think seven lawyers and about 22 staff. Yeah, it's like the law firm yeah. in town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was tough to leave. Yeah. Yeah. And were you happy, though, as a, oh, a private practice? You you now have your own business and you're operating at people uh, helping, you know, build this established profession. And- sure. Yeah, it was it was difficult. I mean, we were thriving and uh, we were helping a lot of people and we were doing it at, at, at you know, affordable costs. Um, and I and absolutely loved what I did. And I was in a routine. I'd been doing it for close to 16, 17 years until the time when that, that discussion started happening. It just started growing that, you know, the population in this county was almost 45%. And of the 30 judges, actually were more at that time, there was no Hispanic representation on the bench. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that conversation started leading up to the thought process of, well, Let's let's see if we can change this narrative a little bit. And all throughout that time, you're still volunteering and mm-hmm. giving back to the community. And uh, I love that part, right? Because it's it's one thing to make a success of yourself, and you you had a, a great launch and a seemingly like you made it, and you still made time to impart some of that wisdom and knowledge to your local community. Sure. And of these, you know, all of these nonprofit boards. Why? Why? <laughs> Why give the time? Yeah. Um, because I think that's what we're put here to do. Everything I've learned, I think others can learn from, because I've, I for sure have learned from many others who've been here longer. And I, I just enjoy sitting down with people who've you know, just experienced life. Yeah. Uh, there's so many lessons to be learned. I think all of us are basically a product of what we've been exposed to. Yeah. Um, so if you've, you, you know, you've, you've had experiences with people that just helps you learn and then better yourself at all times. You know, when I, when I decided to embark on that process to become a, a judge, I didn't know what it paid. I didn't know anything else other than there are no Hispanics sitting as judges in this county. And so nothing else mattered other than learn the process of how you become a judge and then focus all your energies on doing that. I did have a conversation with my law partner and, and we agreed that this was something that was important um, for our community to do um, mm-hmm. because we knew it, I knew it would be difficult to leave uh, the office because we were doing great. Yeah. And what is that process, the pathway to becoming a judge? It's a, is it a formal political campaign? Is it a, do you have to raise money? Yeah. So, so a lot of people don't realize there's two types of judges in, in the state of Illinois. There are elected judges, which are circuit judges. So those are the ones that you get to go down to the ballot box on election day and, and cast a vote for. And then there are associate judges that the elected judges select from a pool of applicants. So the process started off with the associate judge position. So I had to submit an application and it's like a 16 page application. You get about 30, 40 people apply every time there's an opening and, um, and then the circuit judges will interview and, and review, and then they decide who they believe is the next appropriate candidate. So it's a matter of getting these circuit judges on board and, and getting them Correct. to want to pick your name out of the selection group. Correct. And, and it's a process sometimes of attrition, because if I join in today, there's probably you know several that have already been in that process for years that have become more familiar. Um, but it was a little bit different challenge for me, because although some would bring it up to me, um, they'd say, you know, I, I keep hearing these rumors that we need a Hispanic judge. And I was very cautious to say, look, I'm not sitting here because I'm Hispanic. I'm sitting here because I'm the best candidate that you have. Mm-hmm. The fact that you notice I'm Hispanic tells me something. 
Right. And talk about that when you're in that position of governance and authority Mm -hmm. and representation does matter at some point. Did you have to work your way out of people only seeing you as the Hispanic judge? Was that an issue that you were able to just a non-issue after a while? So it's interesting. You know, again, my my approach to it was, yes, I'm Hispanic. Um, I know that that's something that's lacking, but here are my qualifications. I'm here because of what's on my application. That's what mo- should be most important to you because I think that's what they look for. I don't think our judiciary, our society benefits by putting someone on who doesn't meet the qualifications, isn't the best candidate. So the focus was always on being the best candidate. Now, the big transition for me was going from being a partner in a large firm as, as I got appointed. Now I'm the lowest guy on the totem pole. Because I'm oh, the newest guy. Is there hazing at the, <laughs> at the judiciary level? No, there, there's not, but there's still a lot, a lot to prove because just like those experiences when I grew up, moving to a new place, you know, being accustomed to whoever's sitting next to me is my best friend. Uh, I found myself in an environment where it was brand new again. I had to learn how to adapt and overcome any obstacles and things like that. So, and being Latino, you know, we we tend to have this habit of making everyone family. Yeah. And so that's what I did. I'll be honest, I didn't have a lot in common with a lot of the, my colleagues at the time um, because their experiences in life were different and they never had to work uh, side by side with, with uh, someone like me. It didn't mean that, that they questioned my abilities or anything like that, but we had a lot to learn about each other. Yeah. What did you do? How did you go about it? I mean, and this is the other question. Do judges give a, a chance to talk with each other during your workday? I mean, you're Basically in your own courtroom, right? Correct. So how do you... Yeah, so, so it's tricky. It's a very isolated environment. Um, all those boards that you mentioned that I was on, you know, I, I had to leave all those boards because we always have the potential for conflict. And any given day, one of those boards could be involved in a lawsuit that appears in front of me or one of my colleagues. So we, I, I had to step away from some, from some of that. And it's also tricky because you are in your own courtroom. So when I was free and wanted to go around and talk with people, they might still be locked up in court and and vice versa. And we would even make plans sometimes to go to lunch and you have to cancel because someone gets stuck in court. So it's not an easy, easy process. Mm -hmm. But I was the type of person that would just always make a point of walking into someone's room and just start talking to them Mm -hmm. um, and just start learning about them as they would need to learn about me as well. And were you embraced immediately? I, 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 you know, it was, it was tough for me to get the courage up to, to go do it because first of all, there are individuals that, you know, have been judges for a long time. So there's a learning curve for me as well. But uh, yeah, I believe I was absolutely embraced um, by them. It's just a matter of, I think I, I, I tried to break the mold in the sense that there was a, a level, I think, where people were comfortable doing their job. And there wasn't much interaction yeah. um, because the job is a stressful one. It's a tough one. And, and uh, you do need some mental breaks um, that you don't necessarily get. Because when you're sitting in court, you're, you have 100% focus on what's going on in front of you. And um, that can be mentally exhausting. Is it nine to five, Monday through Friday? So it's, uh, it depends. It's different. Some courtrooms are 830 to noon. Some are nine to noon. Some are 130 to 430. But sometimes you sit there for three hours. You may take a short break, but um, your, your mind is at 100% capacity. I tell people that as an attorney, I worked more hours but I wasn't as mentally tired because you have built-in breaks throughout the day. I drive from one courthouse to the other. I can make a phone call. I could listen to a podcast, you know, listen to music in the car. When you're a judge sitting on the bench, you're 100% focused. You don't want to miss anything. You're 100% focused on what's in front of you. 
And then when lunch hits, your mind just, you know, it's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. When you were a lawyer, you were visiting all, a lot of these courtrooms, right? So I, I would think that you would have a good idea of who mm-hmm. the judges are and what their positions are. Uh, are they reluctant to get to know you because you were just previously an attorney? And is there any type of rule that, you know, attorneys aren't allowed to associate with judges on a, on a social level? Yeah, for the most part, judges and attorneys do not associate if they appear in front of you on a regular basis. But I always knew them as judges. So it was so hard for me to call someone who I used to refer to as judge so-and-so by their first name. It it took a while just to break my own comfort level with uh, calling them by their first names. And then over time, you know, everyone embraces everyone. Everyone steps up and says, hey, if you need help, you know, come find me. Um, Here are resources for this, resources for that. And that was more about doing the job. Uh, for me, it was more about the personal relationships. Like I said, Latinos, we, we all embrace everyone like family when we spend a lot of time with them. So I knew I was going to be spending a lot of time with all the judges. So I, I made an effort to try and get to know You're like, everyone. I'm investing in you. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. I don't know if I may or may not, sh- I, should, I shouldn't share this. What I ended up doing was this. Um, and I think this created an entire new world for us as judges. Lawyers are competitive by nature. And when you become a judge, that doesn't go away. So what I did was I created a fantasy football league for our judges. I think the first year we maybe had 10 or eight participants, maybe, maybe 12. And I had to convince everyone because a lot of people said, well, I don't know anything about football. I don't like football. But what it did was I said, look, here's, here's what it's going to do. Yeah, we're all competitive. So you're going to get that competitive edge out. But we're all going to get to learn about each other um, because we're going to interact. And so we created that league. Um, there was, I think, I think it was 10, maybe 12 the first year. And then we just created, I just created a, t- a text string. Every time there was a game, I would trash talk a little bit because, <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me, that's, that's kind of what we do with our competitive spirit. So we would then get to learn um, a, a little bit about people's humor, things like that. And then it evolves over time. So I think we think we're in our fifth year this year. Then you just start sharing a little bit. So hey, I'm on vacation. Here's a picture of me in Panama. Then all of a sudden, another judge sends a picture of them with their dog. And, and then it just starts evolving into everybody starting to learn a little bit about each other. Mm-hmm. When the Cubs were in the World Series, although I'm a Sox fan, everyone's celebrating, everyone. So, so even though we're not in the same room, again, it's difficult to make time for each other during the job. We all were connected yeah. uh, in the sense that we, when we had something that was important to us personally to share, everyone was sharing it. And it just, it just created a bond between us that, although everyone's always willing to help out here and there, it created then an avenue from a personal level to help accomplish the job a little bit better um, because we were all so connected. Um, this last year of the 30 judges, we had 20, 26 of them participate. In the fo- fantasy football? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> almost there. You almost have 100%. Yeah, but that's the level to which um, now we've gotten to know each other and we share. And again, we can, you know, be uh, lighthearted with each other, get to learn. Every time someone gets a puppy, everyone gets excited. Um, yeah. Because it, it does bring that that sense of um, collegiality to everyone. And then it gives us that sense of, even though we all know we have each other's back, it really gives us a, a personal sense of why. Yeah. And... Yeah. You talked about it being just mentally draining and yes. it's, a, it's a lot and judges are judging. Mm-hmm. You are making a binding decision and you're going to upset people. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that of always having an adversary? Sure. So my goal, I have two, 
post-it notes on my bench. One, I drew it myself. I'm not a very good artist, but one says smile. And the other one says, listen, I think those are the two most important uh, components. And I was in family court for eight years. So two most important components to me is to smile, to make it welcoming. And second, to listen so that everyone feels like they were, had an opportunity to participate in the process. As an attorney, um, sometimes you can pull off miracles, but you can't guarantee results for certain clients. So as an attorney, we always live by the idea that if you treat someone well, they'll always come back to you. They're, they may not get the result they wish to get, right. but they'll know that you were there for them. You treated them well. And if they have another issue, they'll, they'll come back to you. And ultimately, it's not your decision. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So as a judge, it's the mindset of you, you have to treat people well in the sense that the process, um, even it may not, may not have worked out the way they wanted it to, that you explain to them why it may not have. You explain to them, because we're applying facts to the law. Mm-hmm. It's not emotional for us, although it is emotional for, for everyone else, um, especially in the family division. Let them know why. Um, let them know that they had a chance to participate and then show them how the, the law maybe applies differently to their particular scenario. But it's important to make sure that they know that when they're in front of you, that's the most important case you have at that moment. Mm-hmm. And then d- your decisions are based on the Constitution, right? Based it's, on supporting... Yeah, so so we have statutes. Everything we do is based on statutes, and then we have case law interpreting those statutes. So that that's what that's our guide um, for applying it, facts. Okay, when you're in the courtroom and you're making these decisions, mm-hmm. what are you thinking about? What's going through your head? So it depends on the assignment. So being in family court, so I just transitioned from being the presiding judge of the family division, which is five courtrooms, to now being the presiding judge of misdemeanor traffic, which is five courtrooms. In family court, it's different. In family court, the the cases kind of belong to the judge. They're guiding the parties through the process of terminating the marriage, resolving any issues financially, and then the children's issues. For the judges in the family division, children's issues take priority over everything else. And again, it's a highly emotionally charged process. So as much as you can narrow that down and kind of get them to narrow the issues down, because ultimately, once it's resolved, people can move on. And, and that's an important part of the process is to be able to start anew. Mm-hmm. In criminal courtrooms now, it's the, the cases kind of belong to the state. They're the ones who charge them. They're the ones who decide they, whether they want to dismiss them or what their ultimate result, I guess, wants to be. So, so those are a little bit different. Those are just kind of more routine uh, than the family court. But in, in family court, it's always about the children. In other professions, you know, you kind of know what success is. Success mm-hmm. is uh, I achieve my goal, I achieve my metric, or I do a great presentation or, mm-hmm. you know, no errors on this Excel spreadsheet. What is success for you as a judge? So, so again, depending on where you're at, again, if you gave the opportunity for the individuals to participate in the process to where they believe they've been heard and you successfully apply that, those particular facts to the law, that, that's about that's as close to success as you can get. Um, we can't be vested necessarily in you know, what happened afterwards. You know, that case is resolved I can't necessarily worry about, you know, what happened to them after that. That's hard though, right? Is is it, is it hard that can, how do you not take those stories and those people home with you, I guess? Correct. So especially in the family court, when I start off in the family division, we have this process where we can talk to children, especially in complex cases. And I would operate from the perspective that, you know, as a lawyer, we were always taught, you know, we don't want to involve children in the process. So I was real hesitant to talk to children over time. I changed that view entirely. Really? And some research indicated that children of divorce as adults still struggled with the idea that they were never heard. Their voices were never heard. So I spent a lot of time meeting a lot of children Mm. in the process. So it's set up to where... 
They come back into the judges' chambers with a court reporter, so there's a record of all of it. Uh-huh. And you just sit and talk to them, and um, you try and bond with them, and you just get them to to maybe spell out what they're how they're feeling, how the uh-huh. process is affecting them. Not that you're necessarily going to do exactly what the child asks you to, but just let them know that you're there Mm -hmm. and that you're trying to do what's best for them and that mom and dad are going through something difficult um, and express to them how much their parents still love them, even though they may not be staying together. Yeah, Those are very powerful opportunities to let them know that they matter um, because sometimes parties in a divorce will forget Mm -hmm. that what they're doing impacts the child and there might be consequences down the road for that. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you just, you just kind of have to flip that switch, go home and then live your life. What does your family think about your profession? Like, how do you, do you can't, can you talk about your cases to your wife, to your kids? Sometimes you pick and choose. There, there are certain things that we see in here in court that you don't necessarily want to share because there, there's sometimes there's unpleasant things that happen. But yeah, when, when, when something feels good, when people, um, and I should back up and say in the majority of the cases, like in divorce court. People reach agreements, which is great. You have to have an agreement with respect to children in particular. When they come in early on with that, that's something that's comforting for a judge because you know that they were able to focus and put their children's interests um, ahead of everything else, uh, even if they still have property or financial issues to uh, fight over. It's, it's, it's just relaxing and it's comforting to know that they, they put their emphasis on that first. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's still a few children that I've talked to that I'm still wondering, yeah. um, you know, how they're doing and things like that. Because, you know, again, I, I, I care yeah. and I'm hopeful that they're, they're on the right track. And then you went into traffic and crime misdemeanors. So traffic and misdemeanors. So I'm sitting in a DUI courtroom right now and I supervise the domestic violence courtroom and the branch courts okay. as well. And how do you like it? As a lawyer, I did basically every area of litigation. So anything that happened in a courtroom, I did. Um, and being in family for eight years, it, that's kind of a long time. We really don't have many judges that are in that division that long. Was that by choice? Um, I think it, over time, it's just the needs of the judiciary. As people retire, just kind of figure out some people have to move around. Okay. And I started off as a judge there as an associate. Then I became a circuit judge. I became an elected judge um, after that in 2020, no, 2018. And then I became the presiding of the division. So then presiding over all five courtrooms. And it just, uh, after a while, I mean, I've got probably another 15 years if I stay as long as I'd like to be on the bench. I just didn't think I was doing myself a service by doing one thing the entire time. Like a part of my brain that I used to be a part of was dormant. So now being in the criminal division again, there's just, there's a light that just like all these fascinating issues that I didn't get to deal with before are, uh-huh. are coming back. So I'm actually enjoying the change. And I do have eyes on doing other things in the future too. So having more of a well-balanced career as a judge would be better as well. And do you ever get scared for your safety? I mean, do you get assigned a personal like security detail? No. <laughs> <laughs> are you able to be social and, and live your life just like a normal like civilian? I don't see a judge as a normal civilian. I see a judge as like, <laughs> oh my goodness. Sure. So that, that's something, one of the mistakes I think I made um, when I first became a judge, understanding that I needed to remove myself from a lot of those boards. I think I removed myself from the community a lot. So you pull back because of the idea of there's conflict potentially everywhere. And I missed out on a lot of things. I felt like I wasn't a whole anymore. Because you're not able to be as social? Correct. So so I, I was maybe equating the social aspects of, and when you say social, I'm, I'm saying more of the volunteer stuff. Yeah. 
you're just nervous about conflict. That first year, it's all about learning the job and you avoid all sorts of conflict so it doesn't interfere. And the conflict you mean by giving personal opinion or having conflict of interest when you're presiding over a case, Mm -hmm. somebody else, if you're on a board, might Mm -hmm. be coming into your courtroom and that would be a conflict of interest? Correct. Okay. Uh, so an example would be, you know, any type of entity that, that would be in court on a regular basis, that any kind of lawsuits that, that eventually it comes in front of me or a colleague and just don't know where those conflicts can arise. Mm-hmm. So it's just a good idea to, to kind of, you know, cut yourself out from that, focus on the job and then learn what you can eventually gradually go back into. Mm-hmm. But then it dawned on me over time that I was, I felt like I was missing out. So I had a social media, I had a Facebook page and I got rid of it. Because I thought that creates too many issues. And and sometimes in jests, uh, even when you're with your friends, it's like, oh, don't worry. We have a judge with us. We're okay. That's the worst thing a judge wants to hear. Because <laughs> yeah. you're putting me in a position that's... Compromising. Uh, not, correct. It's yeah. not a very good position for me to be in. But I know it's it's in jest a lot of times. But, but those are the things that we worry about all yeah. the time. But like I said, I, I did feel like I was missing out on a part of who I was. Um, so I did slowly start to do things. And, and when I would volunteer, you're, you're not going to see me in a suit and tie. I would be the guy in sweats and, yeah. and a hat on because I really don't want to be recognized as the judge. You don't want to be out. seen as that. I just want to be the guy out there next to you and, and helping do things. I remember volunteering at the uh, Interfaith Food Pantry with a bunch of young kids who were working off community service hours and just having conversations with them. And after we were done, one of them asked me, what do you do? And I told them I was a judge. They were just <laughs> like, but I guess I want them to know that, you know, just because that's what I do for a career doesn't mean that you and I can't have a conversation yeah. that I, I can learn about you. You can learn about me. And we're just normal people. I don't want you to behave any differently because of what I do. Yeah. Uh, I just want to be a normal guy yeah. outside of work. And then to normal, to us normal people, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're fascinated by what you do. Yeah. But one of the problems that I think we as judges faced for a long time is nobody knew who we were. You know, so, that's a so, problem? So I was, uh, you know, I was heavily involved in the Aurora community. I became a judge and then nobody knew who I was anymore. When we met, yeah. you were on the Heritage Board. I'd been on there before. You had no idea who I was, no, right? No, I just remembered uh, we were talking about Fiestas Patrias mm-hmm. and you had to run that that event successfully that uh, celebrates um, heritage, right? And it's a, a huge celebration, lots of people, and you were able to bring it back to the city, but for a while it was moved to another city. Oh, Is that how it worked? They didn't have it at all. Oh, we didn't have it at all. <laughs> yeah, for about nine years it didn't exist at all. Okay, it was just in another city and then you brought it here? No, it was it was nowhere. Um, West Chicago was doing like their own little version of it. Um, so you started it? No, so, so it had happened in Aurora for a long time. And then for about nine or ten years it just stopped. Um, the city wasn't allowing it. There were complaints from all segments of the community that wasn't uh, allowing it because of some problems that had occurred previously. So when I became the president of the Chamber of Commerce, the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, I went around and started talking to business owners about, hey, what you know, what what, what do you think needs to happen around here? And and here I am thinking, you know, hey, we need uh, more help with you know permits or you know space or zoning. No, it was this identity issue of fiestas patrias. I'm not Mexican, so so you know I, I knew what it was. I think I'd I'd been at them before, but um, this was the big issue. They're just resounding from everybody. So then it came in. It was a deep dive then to decide what's the problem. That was question number one. So talking to the police department, talking to the city, talking to the local church leaders to find out what were the issues that existed that caused it to yeah. to no longer be allowed. And so we ended up, uh, you know, basically forming a plan and uh, these conversations led to the issues. So then we had to come up with the solutions. 
got everyone to agree that if we were able to do it in this fashion, would they be on board? So by the time we went to the city, um, we had the, a consensus uh, built. It was a risk for them to mm-hmm. agree to do it. It was a risk for us to to say we're going to be able to pull this off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were able to do it the year of the bicentennial of Mexico. Um, so it was a huge, huge event. Um, it was in collaboration with the Hispanic Heritage Board because I was on the board. It was Diana Torres Hawken who was the president of the board at that time. Okay. Um, so we did it in collaboration with each other. And uh, it, was, it was just phenomenal. Uh, uh, it was uh, something that you could just tell was, was lacking here. The reason we met was when I became a judge maybe a year or two later is that I heard that it was in jeopardy. Like it may mm-hmm. not happen. And um, there were conversations going on. And maybe instead of the collaboration between the Heritage Board and the Chamber, you know, I wasn't sure if it was going to happen. So that's when I came down and said, hey, let's figure out what's going on here. Yeah. It's like having a child and someone saying, hey, your child's in jeopardy. Yes. Um, so I came back down. And you were so great during that <laughs> meeting. You were just like, this, 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 that. It was valuable. It was helpful too. Because in that in that time, Adrian and myself and the other people on the board, uh, we weren't sure how to run that event mm-hmm. and we're learning and we're just, we're understanding this is a significant event, but how do you produce an event? Um, and we're learning from, from you, which was great. Sure. That first time we did it, I think I slept at the site overnight because I did not want to take a risk that something would go wrong and not be there. Yeah. If something was going to go wrong, I wanted to be there. And the best event you can throw or anything you do, there's always going to be glitches. But if nobody recognizes the glitches, that's yeah. a success. It's a event. success. <laughs> and it's great that you recognize the community voice, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, identity is an issue. Identity is something that unites people mm-hmm. and, it, and it stills drive. Correct. What drives you? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I ask myself on a regular basis, what's the next step? Um, you know, being a judge at the level I'm at, you know, could, could be it. And I mentioned before, I, I became an associate judge first. So I was appointed by the elected judges. Then I had the opportunity to become an elected judge. So mm-hmm. I, I, I ran uh, for the Aurora Sub Circuit unopposed and was elected in 2018. So then that put me in the decision room to then participate in the process of selecting judicial candidates. And I thought that was the next logical step because we needed a voice to start addressing some of the issues of identity in our judiciary as well. Now, when I was selected as an associate judge, Kane, DeKalb, and Kendall were all three counties in one jurisdiction. So we are all one part of one circuit. The day I was sworn in, those circuits split. So now Kane stands by itself. So we have 30 judges, 14 circuit judges, 16 associate judges. I was the first Hispanic judge, the first circuit uh, Hispanic judge. Since that date, we now have three more Hispanic judges, uh, one African-American judge, and one Indian-American judge, um, which that, that landscape didn't exist yeah. before I came in. So that, that, that was kind of, you know, talking to my colleagues and having them understand that uh, this is, uh, again, we're looking for quality always in the, in the candidates, but that the diversity uh, is just as important yeah. as well. So my, my challenge at that point was being the first, I don't know if I said it in my swearing in speech or not, but being the first is great, but if I, there's never a second, then I'm a failure. Uh, um, so the idea of, of not only breaking that ceiling, but opening the door for others to walk through was very important to me. Mm-hmm. I, I struggle with what, what's that next step is. Do I have an opportunity where I'm at, where I can continue to do that? You know, at some point, being the chief judge for the circuit would, might be important to me. You know, for us as judges, as appellate judges and Supreme Court judges, maybe that's a logical next step as well. 
Uh, I struggle with whether I would enjoy those jobs versus whether I have the bigger impact locally, mm-hmm. um, you know, being a part of something more local because it is an isolating occupation. So where do you find your strength? Where do you find your sources of inspiration? How do you keep yourself going? So how do I keep myself going? I love, I love what I do. I, I love the impact it has. We talked a little bit before about how isolating things were um, for judges and how I pulled myself away from the community. So being involved in things helps out a lot. You know, we developed several programs at the courthouse. One is the Worries of the World Wide Web. Um, which allows us to go into schools and talk to kids about their dangers of texting and you know, crimes that actually you can be charged with by bullying and things like that. Wait, so, so what do teens need to know? What, what, <laughs> what, is it, what, what is the one thing that parents and teens need to know? So I've given the class to, child, to kids, teens. I've given the class to parents. I've given the class to grandparents. And it's just a one-hour presentation. It's fun. It's interactive. We all have the potential to have a lapse in judgment at any time. Yeah. Certain lapses in judgment can lead to criminal conduct and can have long-term permanent consequences. Mm -hmm. So for teens, that's the message is you might think this is funny. You might think it's harmless, but this is what could happen uh, based on some of the things. So it's always the idea of, you know, pause before you hit send. Okay. Um, For the adults, the parents, it's, you have no idea what your child could be doing on their phone while they're sitting next to you in your living room watching TV because that's the power that that device yeah. has. And I grew up in a time where, you know, there were no cell phones. I think the internet came into existence when I was a sophomore in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the children have the power of that in their hands. Yeah, Responsible cell phone usage, you know, letting parents know that they're the ones that are truly the owners of the devices, that you're, they're allowing their children to use them. So that they maintain that ultimate control. I've had parents come to me and say, you know, they won't give me their passwords or unlock their phones and, you know, things like that. And it's like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. That's your device. I mean, if you don't establish those rules from the very beginning, it's real tough to then, you know, recorral that. Yeah. And then the grandparents who a lot of times, you know, economically, they're asked to step up for different things when things go bad. And so we're trying to, to, to help kids understand that responsible internet usage is fine. You know, there, there are many ways and many benefits from using it. Um, but when you start, you know, trailing off into these other areas, it, it gets dangerous. And I believe every kid has a good heart, but you get caught up sometimes in moments. Um, and uh, sometimes it's part of group mentality. And th- those lapses in judgment, though, can, can have real negative consequences. Mm-hmm. So... Would you say that's where you find that's what keeps you going is being able to impart to the community what you know and continuing to pouring out in the public service roles? Yeah. So I think we as judges need to do more outreach. So that was part of the plan with that. We also have another program that was developed by some judges called You Be the Judge, where we go to community groups and talk about how we have to apply the law. Because sometimes you read the newspaper and you say, wow, why would a judge do that? Because we're obligated to a lot of times. It's not about what we think should happen. It's not about what we wish would happen. The law basically tells us what we have to do. Um, so we explain how the legislature and some of the statutes that exist, you know, control our, our, our conduct when we, you might, you might see like an, a very low bond for someone. Well, that's kind of what the law tells us we should do sometimes. Right now we're going to go to this cashless bail system. So we will go out there and we'll throw scenarios at, at individuals and say, what would you do? And the instinct is to do something. But when we express to them, this is how the law works. This is a statute that governs it. They're like, Wow. Yeah. Do you see um, lights go off? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so we need to make sure that the public understands what we do as well. Mm-hmm. So the more outreach we do, I, I think is better because 
when I was going back into the community as a judge, that same kind of expression that you gave is, wow, this person's a judge. I have to behave differently. No, I'm just, I go to the same stores you do and buy my groceries and I play soccer twice a week with a bunch of guys. And uh, I just want to be part of the community. I just yeah. want to be your neighbor. When I'm on the bench, if you're in front of me and I'm doing my job, sure, there, there are roles that we're playing there. But outside of that, you know, yeah. we're, we're neighbors. Our kids should play. You know, we should be able to you know, enjoy ourselves as, as just neighbors. So what keeps you up at night? What's your most pressing challenge that you face? So, so what we just talked about, the next step. I'm always looking for the next step. Um, and I, I do have some ideas of what that may be. It's just a matter of timing. When, you know, when that works out, it has to be right, not just for me, but for my family mm -hmm. as well. Because when I decided to run for the elected position, we had to move because the Aurora Subcircuit is a geographical area. I remember going home to my wife on a Wednesday and saying, hey, this opportunity is coming up, but we have to move. And that was the decision. When it was brought to me, I said, well, I, I'm on board, but I'm going home. If my wife's not on board, then you know, yeah. I, this may not happen. And thankfully, she said, let's do it. And that was a Wednesday. We signed a contract on a house Saturday. and we You got a ride or die, right? <laughs> Shout out to the wife. Yeah. So, so I mean, it was, it was having that family support that, that was real crucial and very important that, that I can, you know, um, do what I feel like necessary in my career. Because again, the, the, it is a job, um, but I still need that balance of my, my personal life and my family life too. And what are you most grateful for? Like when you look back, what is that? What are you most grateful for? You know, I think opportunity, uh, everything in life we do is, is based on opportunity. And the fact that I had two parents that gave me the best example I think I possibly could have. And life wasn't easy, but they made sure that we were always focused on what we needed to do. You know, having, if you've never been in the military, when, when you have uh, a parent who's in the military, everything you do revolves around that, that individual. Yeah. So our whole family had to be supportive of that career and that involved the moving around and, and everything else. And then my mom was very instrumental in making sure that we as, as her sons knew that that was our role to play. Uh, and so you, you got a good sense of where you fit in. You got a good sense of what your purpose was. And then in life, then you, you find your, your opportunity um, for that purpose. Mm -hmm. So like I said, I, I, I always struggle with what's my next step? What's the next opportunity? I don't want to get too comfortable. Even though right now I'm in a new assignment, just been four months and and i'm like i said it's exciting yeah i'm always thinking about what's the next step what's the next logical progression mm -hmm. and a lot of times it isn't about what's best for me but it's about where would the biggest impact yeah. um, happen where do i fit into the bigger picture mm -hmm. what's my role to play now correct in the wider larger view correct and that's a challenge because as i mentioned it may not be the most comfortable position for me. It's always going to depend on the family support um, and whether we're on, all on board. But it's a matter of, yeah, I, I could probably make sacrifices if I think there's a bigger impact to be made. When you think about your kids and mm -hmm. their futures and what you want them to take away from you and, and how you raise them, what do you think is most important for them to know? As adults, you know, it's, real, it's a real difficult time right now. Yeah. Um, so the real... The real Thing I, the message I give them is um, to be accepting of everyone, to be kind to everyone. And if they see someone that needs help, that, 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 that they're there for a reason. If they're in that front line of somebody that needs some help, that, that's, that's why they're there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I mentioned opportunities earlier. Is I, I think that when I trace back my career leading up to today, I would see different moments in time that said, this is why you're here. And I may not be the most religious person, but I, I think there is a higher plan. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're all put in those situations for a reason. 
And then I just, I see signs sometimes. So I see signs that, you know, this is, this is where you were meant to be. And, and now you're being asked to do something. Mm-hmm. And to step up Correct. when that happens. Correct. Yeah. And you're a great example of that too. And you've had great examples of it. Mm-hmm. What do you think the world needs more of? <laughs> so right now, I don't know if I can summarize it in one word. It doesn't have to be one um, word. But, but it, it's, what was the, what was it that Lin-Manuel Miranda said? Love is love is love is love. We, we are so divided right now in our mindsets nationally that my fear is that we allow it to affect us locally because locally is, is the biggest impact we can always have. And I'm afraid that it will, that, that national narrative will translate somehow locally. Aurora is one of the most amazing communities that ever lived. And I never had a place to call home because home is growing up in the military was wherever the army told you was yeah. home. Um, so I've now lived here since 1990, let's see, 1989. Yeah. Um, so I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else. I mean, this is an incredibly diverse community. The ability to learn from, from many people and to be more inclusive and not divisive is, is the, the thing I'm more concerned about. But I see, I see it in Aurora, and I'm not so, so much concerned about Aurora, but I think the danger of that national narrative trickling down is, is, is a serious one. There are a lot of individuals out there that are frustrated with things, and they, they're using their voice in perhaps not the most responsible manner, but in a hateful manner. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, with the leadership we have locally, you know, I, I don't see that happening. We, we tend to celebrate all our differences here in Aurora, which is great. And then the young person, maybe they're a lawyer, maybe they know they want to be a judge. Maybe they're a high school student and they have a vision of becoming a judge. What would you tell them to encourage them? So that's an interesting question because, so we just appointed our, we only have one African-American judge right now and he's from Aurora and a Hispanic judge prior to that. One of the reasons we, we've had trouble and one of the reasons that there weren't um, any Hispanic judges when I became a judge was there weren't many Hispanic lawyers mm-hmm. to choose from. And of the Hispanic lawyers that were here and the African-American lawyers, they weren't applying. So there was a problem, and you can't blame the judges for not appointing a, a Hispanic judge, African-American judge. Right, when, there's not a no pipeline. One, yeah, there's no one applying, and of the lawyers that that were of that criteria, there weren't many to choose from. So even way back then, that was one of the things that, that spurned me wanting to do the program of the Warriors of the World Wide Web, just going out to schools. And I would go to law schools. A lot of times um, we end up losing a lot of those candidates to Chicago. They might come out to Northern, so it's closer to come here, but they, they go other places. Yeah, because lo- location has a factor as Correct. well. Yeah. Correct. So it's just the idea. So I started going to schools just talking. And I started at the law schools and then worked my way to colleges and then down to high schools. And then eventually to middle schools is where kids are going to start forming ideas of who they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking to them about staying out of trouble, you know, getting your education, and then lending myself out to the idea of, if you're thinking about this, I want you to be thinking about it because at your age, I, you know, I, I didn't know, and and, and here I am. Um, but the moment that you think that you want to go on this career path, here's where I'm at. Call me because I'll I'll talk to you. I'll I'll tell you what you know what your next step should be. I'll help you you know find employment if that's where um, you know your needs are at that time. So I, I've offered myself in that fashion. And uh, so that, that's been the, the challenge is that we got to create that pipeline of individuals. And if, if someone isn't thinking about college or let's say they're not thinking about becoming a lawyer. Maybe they don't think they could be, correct. not because they don't, they can't, but they, the belief isn't correct. there. Um, and even if they don't go to law school, if I, if we still get them to go to college, that's yeah. still a win. Right. right? Yeah. Um, even community college, it's still a win. 
have them form that mentality early on that there's no reason they can't. Yeah. You yeah. too can become this. Mm-hmm. What skill is most important for you? To, you said listen as one of the most important. Is there another skill that's deeply important? As far as the job, it's just organizational skills just yeah. to make sure you're always ready. I, yeah. tend, I tend to not leave work until I know the next day is taken care of. As an attorney, I would always use my Sunday to make sure the entire week was planned. As a judge, it's, since it's day-to-day, it's usually the night before. Mm-hmm. But, but organization, and it's one of the things I, I'm, I'm uh, blessed to have learned at the Citadel. The military environment um, gave me that idea of structure mm-hmm. um, so that I can build a structure into my day so that very few things get missed. Okay. So that I'm, I feel like I'm prepared. Not being prepared is my biggest fear. Yeah, really? Yeah. That's your biggest fear is not being prepared. <laughs> Correct. Because bad things happen when you're not prepared, right? This is true. Um, and as lawyers, you know, we, we, we can help you solve your problems, but the sooner you come to us, the be- more options we're going to have. Yeah. Right? When you come to us and it's the last minute and, and you know, the, the bells are ringing, then, then, you know, we have fewer options. So for anything you do, you know, if you're going to take a test, if you studied for it, you're going to feel more confident about the test than if you didn't study at all. So, right. so being prepared is, is always you know, crucial. And uh, you're swearing in video, the person who gave your introduction or yes. um, announced you, he's, he, that was one of the remarks he said about you. He's always prepared. <laughs> I wrote it down here too, prepared. Yes. Um, I love how you said in that swearing in video as well, I'm not done giving back and I'm inviting you to invite me. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's such a powerful st- statement. I'm inviting you to invite me. I'll go where is needed. What do you need? I'll go. Mm-hmm. For people who are listening, maybe organizations or schools or teachers or parents who are saying, I want this person to come and make an impact or a statement to this group of people. Who are those people and what are those groups that are you're more inclined to want to help or serve? So, so I, I, it's anybody, basically. And, and the nice thing is that it's not just me. It's my colleagues as yeah. well. We've all bought into that idea of, you know, because that mentality, again, was we need to withdraw from the world because of the potential conflicts that we have. Now we have a mentality of it's important for us to share who we are and what we do and that we're a part of your community. So at any point, you know, I could, this last year with the pandemic, we haven't been able to do the programs that we normally yeah. have. Um, so we've missed out on that. But if, if anyone reaches out to us, and again, I've done those presentations to church groups, to neighborhood groups, and sometimes it's just two people, you know, and sometimes it's a room full of hundreds and to the schools themselves, anyone who thinks that they can benefit from having us come in, whether it's issues with the law that their community is facing or just to come in and, it's, you know, give kids an idea of what we do. And I, I regularly would read at um, kindergartens. And talking to kindergartners is one of the scariest experiences you can have <laughs> because you have no idea what they're going to say. Yeah. Um, so I really get nervous with kindergartners, <laughs> but, uh, but it's still important. Yeah. And, um, you know, to, to give them, uh, you know, let them hold the gavel and, and bang it. That those are experiences that they go home and I, and I get cards and, from parents and things saying, oh my goodness, you know, they couldn't stop talking about it. Yeah. Um, and then being able to use my, my ability to speak Spanish and talk directly to, to kids that, you know, or it may not be fluent yet in mm. English. You know, it's an experience that hopefully they, they carry on forever and then going back and going back. But all my colleagues, if there's, if there's an issue out there that someone says, hey, we might benefit. Now, again, we can't give opinions about the law in terms of how we would rule in certain cases because we have to look at every single case individually yeah. based on the facts applying the law. But if there's issues out there and you say, hey, we, we're having problems right now with bullying at our school. 
Yeah. We have a program for that. We'll come out and talk to your students. About really? It. I love Jefferson. It was it Jefferson Middle School, the one on Farnsworth? Uh, Cowherd. Cowherd. I think the the prince, the vice principal there is now the principal somewhere else. Yes. So she would say to the students um, when she introduced us, they're going to talk to you about some things that we know are going to happen so that when it does happen throughout the year, we're going to come back and say, do you remember what Judge Cruz said or one of the other judges said? Um, so that we lay the, the, the groundwork for them. Um, so um, that's important for us to, to be able to, I, I always tell people that sometimes my wife and I could give our daughter the very best advice. And she's not going to listen to you. Correct. Until <laughs> yeah. she hears it from so somebody else, her friends, her friend's <laughs> mom or a teacher or somebody else. It drives it, me crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's the opportunity that we provide because um, we'll come out with the row bond and we'll just come out and, and bond um, however we think is appropriate for that, for the, whatever the audience is. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do provide a perspective from which we can, you know, h- help. And it, it makes a, a difference. That work makes a difference. Mm-hmm. I, I shared with you before we started, but in, and in high school, there was an, an attorney who came to my school mm-hmm. and gave his time, volunteered in terms of a, a, a class-based project. And he had us do mock trials and interviews. And that's what gave me the confidence to believe that I could be eligible for college and actually be a lawyer and use my voice. He was the first person who said, you have a voice Mm -hmm. and you're good at it. (laughs) And it changed the trajectory. Um, And those things that matters, it sticks with people. I, I interview a lot of people and it's, does not surprise me anymore how many people say someone took time. They took five minutes and gave extra, and this is why I'm here. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, we, and we, we are now of the mindset that it's not only an option for us, but it's an obligation for us to, when we're asked to do so, that we should. I love that. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.